It is Sunday morning. Our message this morning is going to be titled, Seven More Days. Seven More Days. But before we get going, we want Judah to read this scripture that's been a favorite of mine for a long time. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Come on, son. Go have a seat. You did great. You see, he's not, he's not leaving without his Bible. <laughs> mercy triumphs over judgment. So often, people's view of Christianity is a group of people all dressed to the hilt that don't know how to smile, that don't know how to have a good time, but definitely do know how to look down their nose and point their finger at you. I've not found Jesus to be that way at all. I've found that He will pull you out of the deepest, darkest hole that you can find yourself in. And I love Him for it because I've been able to find myself in some deep, dark holes. Now, if you can't relate to that, I'm sorry. I know what it's like to be in over my head, to have taken a ride down a road I didn't really want to go, and to have to cry out for help. I want to tell you this morning that God is not the God that saved you in 1993 or 1952 or in 1982. He's not the God who saved you in the past tense. He's the God who saves you every day. The miracle of the Scriptures is not that God brought Israel out of Egypt. It's that He's still bringing us out of Egypt today. That's the miracle in the Scripture. I want to read you something about David Livingstone. This touched me, and uh, it really didn't have a lot to do with our message, but it's got everything to do with our church. It would be easy to be discouraged. It would be easy to look around at what the world calls success and not see that here. But I want to tell you something. God has been raising up people just like us for a very long time. Those of you that don't know who David Livingstone is, he was a young man that had a mind for science, a little bit like another young man that I know. He had memorized Scripture early in life, but to no real avail. He thought that it contradicted science. And as time went on, he came to a peace in his heart that he saw science affirmed in the Bible rather than condemned. So he applied for seminary. And in those days, after seminary, you did a residency. And his residency was with another pastor who failed him. said that he would never amount to anything or be a good pastor because he was not an eloquent speaker. He'd also come from a relatively blue-blooded, not the right way to say it, relatively rich and wealthy background. He'd not worked with his hands. He'd not done a lot in his life. And yet in this man's lifetime, he was the very first to cross the entire continent of Africa with the gospel, preaching it everywhere he went. He said in the first year of his ministry, he learned to weld, learned to make soap, (laughs) learned to build houses. And by the way, when he built a house, he cut down the tree and hewned it himself said the very first thing he had to do was learn to cut down a tree so that he could make a mold for the mud brick that he used to build his house. He said in the first year he'd become a jack-of-all-trades. But when asked why there were not larger numbers following him, this is what was said. Livingstone never expected that the work of real Christianity would advance rapidly among the Bakwains. This is a tribe that he's ministering to at this year in his life. For they were a slow people and took long to move. But it was not his desire to have a large church of nominal adherents. Nothing, he writes, will induce me to form an impure church. Fifty added to the church sounds fine at home. 
But if only five of these are genuine, what will it profit on the great day? I have felt more than ever lately that the great object, object of our exertions ought to be discipleship. I can read about somebody who lived in 1830 and feel like he was my brother today because God's been raising up people that have the right heart all of the time. If God will show up in this place and He'll begin to change our lives, then we're achieving our goals. That makes sense to you? All right, open with me to Second Chronicles 30. What have we been preaching about lately? Devoted. Devoted to the apostles' teaching. Devoted to fellowship. Devoted to the breaking of bread and prayer. This church has an emphasis on discipleship because it's what makes a difference in people's lives. It's what separates those from, who make it from those who don't. You ever had an inability to discern exactly where you were with God? You ever thought you were okay only to find out in your prayer time or in a church service that you weren't as close to Him as you had thought you were? Cassidy sent me a joke, so if you don't like this joke, blame Cassidy. In fact, it says, Eric, this might make for a good sermon illustration. So, I'm laying that solely on your shoulders, Cassidy. <laughs> Actually, she thought nobody should share something like this from the pulpit. So what did I do? <laughs> Y'all ready? An 80-year-old man goes for a physical. All of his tests come back with normal results. The doctor says, George, everything looks great. How are you doing mentally and emotionally, though? Are you at peace with God? George replies, God and I are tight. He knows I have poor eyesight, so he's fixed it so that when I get up in the middle of the night to go to the restroom, poof, the light comes on. But when I'm done, poof, the light goes off. Wow, that's incredible, said the doctor, somewhat amazed. A little later in the day, the doctor calls George's wife, Ethel. He says, George is doing fine. But I had to call and tell you, I'm in awe of this man's relationship with God. Is it true that he gets up in the night and poof, the light goes on when he's in the bathroom? And when he's done, poof, the light goes off. With a chuckle, Ethel said, Oh my goodness, he's peeing in the refrigerator again. <laughs> now friends... <laughs> We need to be careful that we don't make the same mistake George does, and I'm not talking about the location of the refrigerator. George had an inability to understand where his relationship with God really was. He mistook his circumstances and the events around his life for being all right with God. I can tell you prosperity can be a curse. I can tell you that with personal experience. I can tell you that poverty can be the best thing that ever happened to you at times, and yet I don't desire to be poor. We need to be able to sit in this message today. We need to be able to put ourselves in ancient Israel with Hezekiah. We need to ask ourselves where we are with the Lord. Rightly understand what He's doing, what His message is for us today, and not mistake something else for God's movement. You understand what I'm telling you? I've got you now for about an hour. If you get up and run for the door, that's what Pero's here for. He'll tackle you. I'm teasing. But as we look at what Hezekiah has done, and our title is Seven More Days, I just encourage you to look somewhat introspectively. You ready? Second Chronicles 30. Hezekiah 
sent word to all Israel and Judah and wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh, inviting them to come to the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. And it's interesting to me. Have you ever seen a family that pastors descended like kings for generations and generations? So-and-so was... Great-granddaddy was a pastor and then, you know, the granddaddy was a pastor and the daddy was a pastor and now Junior is the pastor. There are times that righteousness needs to, seems to fall like a waterfall, you know, and it just goes right on down the generations and it's great. But some of you in your heart can say amen to what I'm fixing to tell you. There are people that God calls that didn't come from noble backgrounds. In fact, Paul said, not many of you did. I take special delight in knowing that God didn't find me in a church. He didn't find me in a situation where everything was all right and okay. And yet He came and found me. Hezekiah did not come from a wonderful family. He didn't have the heritage that I'm so proud that some of my friends and relatives have. His father was a wicked man. You know, I heard it said of Joseph Smith one time, that the only reason he wasn't called the biggest liar in his county was his father already had that title. Well, Hezekiah's father was a man named Ahaz, and he did about everything that could be done that was wicked in Israel. Ahaz's name meant he who possesses. In other words, he was in ownership. He was in control of Israel. You contrast that with Hezekiah, who we're going to read about. His name means... Yahweh is my strength. There is a mentality in this world that takes by strength and force what is theirs. And they possess it. And that's what is theirs. And there's a mentality of the kingdom that says, whatever I have, I have through the strength of God. The kind that has no beauty or majesty to draw you to it, and yet is full of strength. That was Hezekiah. He sends out a letter to all of Israel. What's interesting about Israel at this time to me is it's divided into two kingdoms. Our year is somewhere around 730 B.C. And the northern kingdom has been carried off by the Assyrians. There's only remnants left because of unfaithfulness, we're going to find out. And they had been at war with the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. There's been constant infighting. But Hezekiah stands up and he does something. He sends out a letter not just to his subjects, not just to his closest friends, but sends out a letter that goes to all of Israel, northern and southern kingdom. He even takes special care to make sure that it's not only addressed to the occupants of the northern kingdom, but to their leaders, Ephraim and Manasseh. And listen to what the letter has to do with. The king and his officials and the whole assembly in Jerusalem decided to celebrate the Passover in the second month. They had not been able to celebrate it at the regular time because not enough priests had consecrated themselves and the people had not assembled in Jerusalem. The plan seemed right both to the king and to the whole assembly. They decided to send a proclamation throughout Israel from Beersheba to Dan, the southernmost point in Israel's kingdom to the northernmost point. I want you to get something though. Hezekiah was not ruling over the northern part, only the southern part. A king named Hoshea was ruling in the north and they had often fought. They decided to send a proclamation throughout Israel from Beersheba to Dan, calling the people to come to Jerusalem 
and celebrate the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. It had not been celebrated in large numbers according to what was written. Now, is anybody familiar enough with the Passover to know what month it's supposed to be celebrated in? Patricia held up her finger. Thank you for Bible school students. The Passover is supposed to be celebrated in Nisan. Now, i got an interesting bit of trivia for you. Nisan was not the first month. But when they celebrated the Passover in Nisan, God said, this is now your first month. Does that remind you of anything? If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. All things have become new. I don't know. How old were you, Craig, when you got saved? Sixteen years old. The moment that Craig got saved, did that mean that those 16 years of his life suddenly went away? No, but it meant that God would count it as if it had begun that day. Passover was something that was instituted like our communion to give people a fresh start, to remind them this is the day that death passed you over and you began to walk into life. But these guys are not celebrating it on the first month. That's not right, is it? They're celebrating it in the second month. Now, those of you that have studied the Scripture for a while know there can be horrible consequences for deviating from the prescribed way. You remember in 2 Samuel 6, a man was walking beside the ark as it was being carried by oxen? A man named Uzzah. And the ark that was being carried by oxen, one of the oxen stumbled, and Uzzah reached out to do something. He tried to steady the ark. You remember what happened to Uzzah? Does anybody remember that? He got struck dead. That scared David. Scared David and he thought, oh, how can I bring the ark into my city? Send it to Obed-Edom. Until he saw how blessed Obed-Edom was, then he decided to bring it back. And this time inquire of the Lord about the prescribed way. The ark was to be carried on men's shoulders because the glory of God would rest on men's shoulders, not animals, not a beast of burden, but men. I often wondered, why did that happen? And I began to think that perhaps it happened because God loved Uzzah and He wanted to make sure that Uzzah did not ruin something that he was trying to display in that act. Well, if that were true, if God struck a man dead because he was ruining something that God wanted preserved in the Scripture for all time, for us to see and be able to learn from, then how on earth does Hezekiah offer a Passover in the second month and get away with it? Turn with me to Numbers, but keep your finger in Second Chronicles. I'm going to try not to flip around with you too much, but I want you to read this in Numbers 6. In number 6, starting in verse... It's not 6, it's numbers 9. If you make a note in your Bible, try to make it in the right place. In numbers 9, starting in verse 6, it says, But some of them could not celebrate the Passover on that day because they were ceremonially unclean on account of a dead body. So they came to Moses and Aaron that same day and said to Moses, We have become, become unclean because of a dead body. Why should we be kept from presenting the Lord's offering with the other Israelites at the appointed time? Moses answered them, Wait until I find out what the Lord's command is concerning you. I wish to God that when the church saw people that they thought were ceremonially unclean, they would go before God and wait for an answer from God. Because what I have found is that we are all too quick 
to point our long skinny finger at somebody and tell them they can't participate. They are not worthy. They don't belong here. Moses wasn't like that. He wanted to go hear from God. Let's see what happens. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites, When any of you or your descendants are unclean because of a dead body or are away on a journey, they may still celebrate the Lord's Passover. They are to celebrate it on the 14th day of the second month at twilight. They are to eat the lamb together with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And he goes on to say what they must do. Turn with me back to Chronicles. Let me walk you through this again as we read this chapter. <laughs> that air conditioner is turning my pages. We have a king who is ruling in Yahweh's strength, but he faces a problem. There's been such bitter fighting in Israel and such unfaithfulness between his kingdom and the northern kingdom that it's in shambles. Nobody is celebrating the Lord's Passover. Nobody is receiving from God what they're supposed to receive because of backfighting and unfaithfulness. In fact, an Assyrian has come and carried off God's people. This is not all that different from Israel in the day that Jesus showed up. The people were being devoured. They were being devoured by religious infighting. They were being carried off by a Gentile oppressor. It's not all that different than the church in our day. Why are there ten churches in this square mile here? Could it be because Christians can't get along? Could it be because we don't know how to lay aside disputable matters and just lift up Jesus? Oh, there have been lots of movements that have tried. But why is it that that's true? I want you to get this. Jesus is just like Hezekiah. He's calling out to a troubled group of people. He's reaching out not to the healthy, not to those that have been in Jerusalem celebrating the Passover, not to those that are ceremonially unclean. He's reaching out to those that are not. How about this second month, though? Let's keep reading and then I'll tell you why they do it in the second month. At the king's command... Couriers went throughout Israel and Judah with letters from the king, from his officials, which read, The people of Israel return to the Lord, to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. By the way, that word, people of Israel, return, you know what that is? Teshubah. It's a variant of Teshubah. It means repent. Make an about face. He's saying, people of Israel, repent. Turn back to God that He may return to you who are left, who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. Do not be like your fathers and brothers who were unfaithful to the Lord, the God of their fathers, so that He made them an object of horror, as you see. Do not be stiff-necked as your fathers were. Submit to the Lord. Come to the sanctuary which He has consecrated forever." Before we finish reading this letter, this king, this righteous king who rules in Yahweh's strength has sent out a letter not to the clean, to the ceremonially unclean. Not to just those he ruled over, but those outside of his dominion, inviting them into his kingdom. And he sent couriers throughout the land. Sounds a little bit like the book that we read Wednesday, Acts chapter 1. He gave them power to be witnesses in Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. They went out. It sounds a little bit like Matthew 22 where He sent out people with invitations calling them to a great feast like a Passover. Verse 8. Do not be stiff-necked as your fathers were. Submit to the Lord. 
Where have you heard that word stiff-necked before? Didn't Stephen stand before a Sanhedrin after Jesus had come? After somebody ministering in the strength of the Lord had sent out proclamations throughout Jerusalem and Judea, it was being carried to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And the religious people who thought they were already clean couldn't accept it. And Stephen said, don't be stiff-necked. You always resist the Holy Spirit. It is never the clean... I'm sorry, it is never the unclean who have a problem with the message. We know that we're unclean. We're ask, ask for help. We know we don't have it together. We're willing to see mercy triumph over judgment. It's always those who view themselves as clean that have a problem. The lame, the beggars, and the cripples ran to Jesus, ready to receive Him as a king because they knew they needed something from Him. But the religious that could quote all of the Scriptures and thought they were okay. They were ready to kill Him. It's funny, we all have a little bit of a lame guy or a crippled guy in us. And we all have a little bit of a Pharisee in us. My goal as we read this and we study this is to find out where the heart of God is. What is it that He's looking for? Watch what happens here. Come to the sanctuary which He has consecrated forever. Now, there's a sanctuary standing in His day. Solomon built a beautiful sanctuary. But this is 250 years after Solomon's lifetime. Is that sanctuary there today? It's not there. It's not in Israel now. Solomon had a temple and Zerubbabel had to rebuild it in Jesus' day and it was tore down in AD 70. He said, I want you to come to the sanctuary that's been consecrated forever. Well, if there's no temple there, how can Hezekiah walk to the temple there say it would be consecrated forever? What is he inviting them to and what have you been invited to? I think it's interesting. When Jesus was asked, hey, why is it that you say these things and do these things? Give us a sign. He said, I give you a sign. You tear down my body. You tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it again in three days. He said that in John 2.19. Hebrews 7 says in the 16th verse, He was declared with power to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek forever on the basis of a life that couldn't be destroyed, an indestructible life. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says that your body is a temple for God. So what is it that Hezekiah is calling them to? Well, the temple was a place where God's name dwelt. He said, long before there was ever a temple, he said in the book of Deuteronomy, you get into the land that I'll give you, I will show you where my name will dwell. And there you're to go to present your offerings. There you're to go to present your sacrifices. There is a place where God's name dwells. And it's not in a building built by human hands. That's why we can worship in a garage here today. That's why people can get filled with the Holy Spirit in the parking lot of coffee houses. Hezekiah is inviting these people He's inviting them to come and participate in something. He doesn't care whether they've recognized Him as their King or not. He wants them to heed the message and come. Indiscriminately, the message goes out. If you return to the Lord, then your brothers and your children will be shown compassion. There's a time period in our history called the Great Awakening where men of God preached with fire and fervor. And they preach things like you are a 
hanging on a spider web, dangling over hell. And they called it a great awakening because the people suddenly became aware that they were under judgment. That's not unlike John the Baptist's message. What did he preach? The axe is at the root. It's ready to cut down the tree. He's going to gather the wheat into the barn. He's going to burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. And there's a place for that message. But often it's all too emphasized because that ministry lasted six months and then it was succeeded by Jesus' ministry which was one of compassion that said, you're weary, you're heavy laden, come to Me. You will find rest. I'm telling you this morning that this same spirit that Hezekiah preached with where he sent out a message throughout the whole land and he said, hey, if you'll just turn to the Lord, you'll find compassion ought to be in the church today. There needs to be a place of compassion in the church. One that says, I understand you messed up. I was saved from the same situation and might need to be saved from it again tomorrow. Stand with me that we might be stronger. What Hezekiah is trying to do is unite those who are called to be like God, even though they're not acting like those called to be like God. If you return to the Lord, then your brothers and your children will be shown compassion by their captors and will come back to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and compassionate. He will not turn His face from you if you return to Him. I want you to get this. He will not turn His face from you if you turn to Him. What does that mean? I told you all during worship, that Fred Hall was the first man that ever quoted the ironic blessing to me. You know what the second line of it is? May the Lord be gracious and compassionate to you. May He make His, light, His face to shine upon you. They had this view that because they were the people of God, because they were chosen of God, that they could raise their face towards and His very radiance would shine upon them because He delighted in them. Saints, that's the view of a Christian. We are supposed to Understand that not because of our performance, not because of anything other than we love Him and we are turning towards Him, not only will He not turn from you, His face will shine upon you. He delights in you. He's looking for a chance to give Nicholas Slaughter His kingdom. He's giving Nicholas a chance to act like a king in His kingdom. All too often, all we have heard it's that God is disappointed, that God is upset with our behavior. There are times that's true. But if He's upset with our behavior, it is only because you have yet to take your chin and turn it from the thing that has distracted you and to Him. He is looking for the opportunity to bless you and your life, not to condemn you. Have you ever heard the message that says you better get to this altar? You could die in a car crash on the way home. You could fly away. You could do whatever. I understand. I'm a salesman. There's a temptation to create a sense of urgency, to go for the clothes. The truth is, is that God has extended and expanded and extended the invitation over years and years and years because He's not willing that any should perish. The question is not... You should get to this altar this moment so that you don't die on the way home. The question is, how long will you insult the Lord's grace and the Lord's mercy? What excuse do we have for not serving Him with our whole heart? Is it because we're scared that He'll condemn us? His Scripture teaches us that that's not true. 
Is it because we're too unclean to come close to the church people? The couriers went from town to town in Ephraim and Manasseh as far as Zebulun, but the people scorned and ridiculed them. Nevertheless, some men, you might say a remnant of men, from Asher, Manasseh, and Zebulun humbled themselves and went to Jerusalem. The message has always been the same. It's always been one of compassion and mercy and mercy triumphing over judgment. And yet, most can't receive it. It goes throughout all the land, whether you've been at war with God or trying to be at peace with Him, whether you've been raised in His dominion or outside of it. The message goes out. Come, turn towards God that He can be gracious and compassionate towards you. And yet most scorn it. Why? Well, what's the difference between those that don't scorn the message and those that do? According to this text, the ones that did humbled themselves. It is a humbling thing as a man or woman. Grown up, supposed to be self-sufficient, got your own household, maybe your own kids, to admit, I don't have this right with God. I may sit in church. I may sing the right songs. I might say the right things. But my life is not reflecting the glory of the Lord's face. I haven't turned to Him like I should. I'm too busy watching things on the left and the right. It takes humility to do that. Do you know why? Do you know why Israel had such a hard time with the message, repent and be baptized, that John the Baptist came? To be mikvahed, to be washed, meant you were dirty. They had a hard time receiving the message that they were dirty and needed to change. I found the very same thing true in the church today. Ask people in the mall. Ask them in your workplace. Ask them. You a Christian? Oh yeah, I'm a Christian. They're a Christian like you are a hamburger for going to McDonald's. They're a Christian for going to church. But you tell me how many people you run into on a daily basis that you see. Their face is turned towards God to the point where they reflect the Lord's glory. That's the goal. The goal is that we show that we are Christians by what we do. And if we haven't done that, there's an opportunity to return. The couriers went from town to town in Ephraim and Manasseh as far as Zebulun, but the people scorned and ridiculed them. That really is like Matthew 22. Do you remember the first couriers that are sent out in that parable? What happened? They were killed. I know I'm fighting the temptation to read you Matthew 22, but we're not. We're going to stay right here. And so what did he do? He sent more. But this time he said, don't go to those wicked people, the ones that scorn the message. Instead, go find anyone you can along the roads wherever they are and invite them to my great feast. You know who that is, saints, in the parable? Us, Gentiles. A people not looking for God, but found by Him. How dare we then turn a self-righteous nose towards anybody? Nevertheless, some men of Asher, Manasseh, and Zebulun humbled themselves and went to Jerusalem. Also in Judah, the hand of God was on the people to give them unity of mind to carry out what the king and his officials had ordered, following the word of the Lord. How is it that you came to be in covenant with God in the first place? Is it because you were smarter than anybody else? I love the answer. John the Baptist was asked, Jesus uh, Jesus is baptizing more people than you are. 
And the truth is, Jesus wasn't baptizing anybody. The disciples had misunderstood that, and John points it out. You know what John the Baptist said? A man can only receive that which is given him from heaven. That's found in the Gospel of John. We don't have anything as human beings that God has not given us. Not a thing. You might say then, why does He hold me accountable? Because He will give you all things if you'll just submit to Him. There's not a door that He won't open for you if you'll submit your life and knock. There's not a thing that you can't receive. You lack wisdom? What does James say? Ask for wisdom. He'll give you more. So I'm asking you, church, what holds us back? The invitation's going out. He'll be compassionate. He'll be merciful. All He really wants is for your face to shine with His rays because He delights in giving you all that He is. So what holds us back? What makes us apathetic? We do the same thing we've always done. And isn't that a form of pride? Ask somebody, are you in love with the Lord? Well, my family's always been religious. All my life we've been religious. Well, that's great. Are you in love with the Lord? And they don't know what you're talking about. I have a close relative, close by genealogy, that has died. And uh, some, some years back has died. And not only was there no fruit in this man's life that led me to believe he was in the kingdom, all of the fruit led me to believe the exact opposite thing. And near his death, I pleaded with him. I said, hey, there is a God who will be compassionate and mercy to you. And a stubborn bottom jaw, stern as flint. I've been religious all of my life. Wow, that's not the object, is it? The object is that we reflect the glory of God. That's what we want. The hand of God had to be upon them for them to accept that came from the Lord. Did you see the hand of God in here this morning? You know, there are a lot of church service and this does not pat ours on the back. There are all, a lot all over the world where the presence of God shows up in power. But there are an awful lot where that doesn't happen. I'd like you to consider the fact that perhaps the reason you were in here this morning was to hear this message. Perhaps the reason that you're here today where the presence of God was here powerfully was so that you have an opportunity for your life to change. This ministry is named Life-Changing Ministries. Could that be a coincidence? Could it be a coincidence that you find yourself on a Sunday morning in a church called Life-Changing Ministries hearing a message about a second chance? Maybe it was contrived by the pastor. Maybe I'm just smart enough to know what's going on in your life and all the reasons that you might need to hear this message. I decided to preach on this message this morning at 7 a.m. because I believe that it's what God had me preach on. You know why? Because it's what I woke up thinking about. I hope that doesn't sound trite to you or too flippant. I believe that God has orchestrated these events because He wants you to know something. There's a, there's a powerful point here. These people were already supposed to be celebrating Passover. They were supposed to be ready. In fact, there are three annual feasts that you had to go to Jerusalem as an Israelite. By the way, these people's name, they Israel means prince with God. That's what they were called to be. And yet, they had not been celebrating Passover. And so the message goes out. We'll celebrate Passover with you. Just come. The Lord's ready to be gracious to you, to make His face shine upon you. Verse 13, a very large crowd of 
assembled in Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread in the second month. They removed the altars in Jerusalem and cleared away the incense altars and threw them into the Kidron Valley. He said, wait a minute, I thought we were celebrating Passover. Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread overlap. One begins the other. Because in accepting the Passover lamb, it is necessary that you examine your life. That's why I told you before we took communion today. To examine your life. In fact, a father during Unleavened Bread would take his son like Eric taking Judah. Throughout the house, the mother would have cleaned it spotlessly. Would even scrub the walls and boiled everything that could be boiled and passed everything through the fire that could withstand fire to eliminate any possibility of yeast which represented sin. And yet, the night before, they would walk around and drop little breadcrumbs in places so that the father could come, take his children, and by candlelight in a dark night, go through the house with the candle that is the light of God's Word on their hands and knees examining every corner and every window seal so that when the children found the little balls of bread, he could put them in a bag, take them outside, and burn them. Why do you think God had Israel do that every year for 1,600 years? The church is fine with receiving the Passover lamb. We don't do so well with examining our house on our hands and knees. We do very well at examining everybody else's house. Have you ever visited somebody's house and said, man, how messy is this? Can you believe they do this or that? And then you go back home and trip over your clothes basket? Yeah. yeah I don't talk to you about something I heard. I mean, I've done this. It was Matthew's house. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Cassidy keeps a wonderful house. So often the church has got our eyes on something that the Word does not have its eyes on. And it's wrong. A very large crowd of people assembled in Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread in the second month. They removed the altars in Jerusalem and cleared away the incense altars and threw them into the Kidron Valley. Anybody ever wondered where hell was? Ever been a thought? You ever heard the stupid internet stories that circulate among Christians? Somebody was drilling for oil in such and such place and they heard screams? Yeah, yeah all that stuff has been going on since there was an internet. Well, in Bible times, the place that most represented hell was where they threw these altars and things that didn't belong there. One end of the Kidron Valley was called Gehenna or the Hinnoan Valley. It depends on which language you're talking about. And that was the place that Jesus said hell was just like. There needs to come a place where we start to answer this call in our life. There needs to come a place where we take honest assessment of where we are and we begin to push the things in our life that don't belong right into hell where they belong. A very large crowd of people assembled in Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Second month. They removed the altars in Jerusalem and cleared away the incense altars and threw them into the Kidron Valley. They slaughtered the Passover lamb on the 14th day of the second month. The priests and the Levites were, you might underline this, ashamed and consecrated themselves and brought burnt offerings to the temple of the Lord. Why would the priests and the Levites be ashamed? The priest had not gotten them. All of Israel did not get themselves ready. Now, we love to quote Scripture that Peter says, applying it to the church. He's quoting Exodus. You are a kingdom of priests, a royal nation, a holy priesthood, 
We love to quote that about us. It's true. Isn't it true? The priest in the church should be ashamed if we've not shown by our lives that people should get ready. When we don't get it right, the world who is watching us has no hope of getting it right. The priests are ashamed because they weren't ready in the first month. They didn't get the people of Israel ready in the first month. They weren't prepared to receive the Passover lamb that represents Jesus at the appointed time. And since they weren't ready, God had to raise up a mighty king who would get the people ready. Somebody who reigned in Yahweh's strength. Is that beginning to sound familiar to you? Well, why the second month? How on earth did Hezekiah choose the second month? Well, we read in Numbers 9, verse 6, that there was this provision in the law. If you had come into contact with death, if you had been so far away from the Lord's temple on the day the Passover was offered that you could not get there, then it could be offered a second time. Saints, I don't know where you've been, how far you've been from the Lord's temple in your life. I don't know that. It could have been hundreds of miles. It could have been the other side of the globe. But there's a second offering for a reason. We don't serve the God of just once and then you're out. We serve a God who will pick you up every time you fall down and it requires only one thing of you. You have to admit that you've touched death. You have to admit that you've gotten your clean clothes dirty. And you have to say, Lord, I need your help. By them coming in the second month, they were acknowledging, we're unclean and we know it, but we still want you. We still want your graciousness. We want your compassion. We heard the good news or gospel of Hezekiah and we want it. And so they came. Now when they came, the priests were ashamed. Then they took up their regular positions prescribed in the law of Moses, the man of God. The priests sprinkled the blood handed to them by the Levites since many in the crowd had not consecrated themselves. The Levites had to kill the Passover lamb for all those who were not ceremonially clean and could not consecrate their lambs to the Lord. You ever been really proud of your testimony? Well, I came to the Lord at this time and on this date and blah, 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 blah. Boy, I have. I've told my testimony to anybody that will listen. Sometimes for people to come to the Lord, it literally takes you figuratively killing the Passover lamb for them. Maybe you bring them to church. Maybe you get on your knees with them. Maybe it's in a workplace outside of a porta can but you are willing to get down in the mud with them. So often as Christians, we have this attitude. Well, it's right there for everybody to receive. I did. I don't know why they don't. You know, Like their condemnation is deserved. Do you have any relatives that you have a hard time being around? And because you don't like to be around them, when you leave, you're like, well, that's the opportunity to get saved. I did. That's Jonah's attitude. You get swallowed by a whale like that. God's not willing that any should perish. If you have to, you should be willing to get down in the dirt with them to help them. That's the heart of God. That's why He hung around with sinners and publicans, which is the nice way to say sinners, whores, prostitutes. You know, we've cleaned up those translations to make them nice for church. They're not nice. They're not nice at all. You know why? Jesus was not scared to get dirty. He was not scared to get dirty at all. 
The priests sprinkled the blood handed to them by the Levites. Since many in the crowd had not consecrated themselves, the Levites had to kill the Passover lambs for all those who were not ceremonially clean and could not consecrate their lambs to the Lord. Although most of the many people who came from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun had not purified themselves, yet they ate the Passover lamb, contrary to what is written. Did you know that you can't touch a leper? if you're a Jew. And because you couldn't touch a leper, (laughs) they made regulations. It's called a fence around the law. Since the law said not to come into contact with a leper, they put a fence around that. A little bit stricter teaching so that nobody would be tempted to get inside of the fence. In other words, the law said don't touch a leper. They said don't come within so many feet. Of a leper. And then they put a fence around that fence just to be abundantly cautious. Let's put bells on all lepers. Let's require them to have bells so that I don't knowingly come within so many feet and knowingly bump into one. In Israel, you could identify a leper because you would hear the jingling of the bells that were attached to their garments as required by the law on penalty of death. Not God's law, man's law. And Jesus didn't have any problem reaching out His hand, coming inside of all three fences and touching them. Why? Because He knew they would be clean when He did. He knew He could make them clean. These people were all ceremonially unclean and yet they ate the Passover anyway. If when I told you about communion today, you thought you had to have your life perfect to partake communion, it's because your life is not perfect that you do take communion. That's why. In fact, I'm going to leave it open after the service just in case. I'm going to take it with our worship team. We serve a God who is willing to make you clean. He knows what you are. He's willing to fix you. Proof of that. Lots of proof of that. But one of the proofs of that is the idiot standing behind the pulpit now. He's made me clean. You know how I know that? When I pray, when I think about Him, I feel His presence and His approval. And even if my heart rises to condemn me, God's bigger than my heart. You don't have to stay in a situation where you feel unfavorable with God. It can be fixed in seconds. I know the church would like to punish you. Religious people would like to remind you of just how bad you've been. That's not Jesus' stuff. Yet they ate the Passover contrary to what was written. But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, May the Lord, who is good, pardon everyone who sets his heart on seeking God, the Lord, the God of his fathers, even if he is not clean according to the rules of the sanctuary. And the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. You need to get this. Why on earth did Uzzah get struck dead for touching an ark? But Hezekiah prays and the people can do something not prescribed in the law and still get away with it. Because Uzzah would have ruined a shadow and type that said, the presence of God carried on the shoulders of men and placed in a tent that represents a body. He would have prevented that mistakenly and God didn't want that to happen. But this shadow and type, God wanted to preserve. He wanted you to understand there is a prescribed way. And if you find yourself outside of it, there is mercy for you. You can be healed. So you hadn't gotten it all right. Maybe you don't do all the things. Or, dear God, you do some of the things. 
that the church says that you shouldn't do. There's a way to be healed from that error. There's a way to get it right. God's not willing that any should perish, even if His church is. Hezekiah prayed that they would be pardoned. I know what it was like to lay in bed every night and feel guilty. To not be able to hold my head up in certain people's presence because they knew I was guilty. You know why I dance like a little kid even though I have no rhythm? Can't clap on beat, can't sing, but I will do it every worship service? I know what it's like to be pardoned. Jesus did not turn away an unclean woman when she clung to His feet even though He was ridiculed by other people. If He knew what kind of woman that was, He wouldn't allow her to touch Him. Surely He would send her away. Well, that's the cry of the church today. It really is. Why on earth does so-and-so go to that church? Can you believe that so-and-so sang that song? Oh, pastor so-and-so, he's got so many problems. Man, those that have messed up an awful lot love an awful lot. We know what we've been forgiven of. I'm not telling you to shoot for mediocrity today. I'm not telling you that it's okay that you sin. I'm telling you there's a remedy for our problems. I'm telling you there's a God who's willing to make us clean and cause us to walk on the heights of the mountains who will train our hands for battle. There's a God who will empower us to something better. Conviction says you're capable of more. Condemnation says you can't and you never will. In Christ, there is no condemnation, but there is certainly conviction. You're capable of more than you've done thus far. Your life must progress towards Jesus. And if Joey compares his life with Vincent, and if Vincent compares his life with Bobby, and Bobby compares his life with Judah, they may all think they're okay on the scale. But that's not what it's about. God will measure you against His will for your life each day. And tomorrow more will be required of you than was yesterday. He's given you everything you need for life and godliness. He's willing to pardon every problem. Hezekiah prayed and they got healed. The Israelites who were present in Jerusalem, verse 21, celebrated the Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven days. We get to that. I was watching two little boys jump on a trampoline. One of them, the bigger one, hurt the smaller one. This was Matthew and I. No, I'm teasing. Who's the bigger one? It's me these days. Matt's getting smaller. The little boy, after being hurt several times, went off sulking. Shoulder shrugged. Lips stuck out. The older boy was tired of playing on the trampoline by himself. Felt an absence of fellowship. And began to say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Come back. The little boy cried out something astutely. What kind of sorry are you? <laughs> is it the kind that is sorry enough not to do that anymore? Was the inference. What kind of sorry are you? We need to get to a place when we repent. It's the kind of sorry that does not want to do those things anymore. Not just the sorry that you don't like the way it's turned out. The sorry that says, I don't want to do that anymore. It's okay to admit, Lord, it's in me. There's a drive that wants to, but I turn my back on it and I don't want to do those things anymore. What kind of sorry are you? 
good being a daddy. You find out all kinds of things about the gospel you couldn't read in any book. The Israelites present in Jerusalem celebrated the Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven days with great rejoicing, while the Levites and the priests sang to the Lord every day, accompanied by the Lord's instruments of praise. How long is the Feast of Unleavened Bread? Read your Bibles. Seven days. Seven days. It starts on the 14th of Nisan, the first day. I'm sorry, the first month of their year, and it goes for seven days. They combined the feast. Did is not a word, but you know what I mean. I've been corrected for blaming all of my vocabulary errors on uh, Louisiana. My mother is a teacher in Louisiana, and she listens to these messages, and she said, you know, that's really not fair. And uh, she's right. So I'm sorry for making that mistake. Seven days the Feast of Unleavened Bread lasted. So for seven days they're doing this and they're happy. Verse 22. Hezekiah spoke encouragingly to all the Levites who showed good understanding of the service of the Lord. For seven days they ate signed portion and offered fellowship offerings and praised the Lord, the God of their fathers. The whole assembly... The whole assembly celebrate the festival for seven more days. So for another seven days, they celebrated joyfully. Now, you remember the first time I told you it had to be done in the first month, and then I read you out of nine a provision that it could be done in the second month under certain circumstances? There is absolutely no provision in the law, not anywhere, for extending the feast for 14 days when it should be seven. This is absolutely a violation of the law. You know what it's not a violation of, though? The heart of God. Matthew 18, 14 teaches us. It says, I tell you what, what happens when one sheep strays away and leaves 99? A good shepherd will go after the one sheep leaving the 99, not willing, hear me? Not willing that any should perish. Second Peter picks up on this and says, 2 Peter 3, 8. says, you know, the Lord's not delaying His coming. He's not slow, as some would understand slowness. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. He's just not willing that any should perish. Why on earth would Hezekiah send this out to people that are unclean, allow them to participate, and then extend it a second week? Because God is not willing that anybody miss this opportunity. That's why I'm offering communion again after the service. God is not willing that anybody should miss out on this. Not anybody. Don't leave this place unchanged today. I can tell you this was not prescribed in the law and it took a special discernment of the heart to know you weren't going to get stoned for it. You got stoned for violating the law in other ways. But this deviation from the law, if you will, was taking grace just a little bit further. And that's something you find out God is willing to do. That's why we read the Scripture, mercy triumphs over judgment. God was not looking for an opportunity for you to deviate in your life so that He would have a pretext for burning you. He's looking for an opportunity to show you mercy and let that triumph over judgment. Don't insult Him by refusing that offer. Find His mercy while you can. The whole assembly then agreed to celebrate the festival seven more days. So for another seven days, they celebrated joyfully. You hear that last word? Joyfully. 
They were happy. Why were they happy? Because they knew they didn't deserve this. Saints, when you meet Christians that aren't happy, they either never heard the good news of great joy, which is what the angels called it, or they have forgotten that they did not deserve this. The smiles on our faces are a proclamation. Wow! I got away with something in that God forgave me when I didn't deserve it. I got pardoned. Not got away with it in that there was no price. Jesus just paid it for you. Another Scripture Fred gave me one Christmas was Job 9. And it speaks of a setting where Job cries out and he says, Who is God? He's not a man like me that I could question Him and answer. Oh, that there were somebody, somebody to lay His hand both on God and me. Somebody to remove God's terror from me. Then I could speak up without fear. That's exactly what's happened. In this message and in so many other messages repeated throughout the Scripture, all 66 books are aiming at one point. Somebody's laid their hand upon God and upon you willing to bridge the gap. Willing to bridge the gap for you and say, I know you were unclean, but I will make you clean. I know it's the wrong time. You should have done this earlier, but we can do it now anyway. I know you feel like you can't look in the face of God, but you can. And more than that, you can reflect Him. I delight in you. I want you. You can succeed. Now, the church has misunderstood this message too. They preach a gospel that is motivational speaking. That's not what I'm doing. I think it's great that there are positive messages going out, but that's not all it is. It's not an I'm okay, you're okay gospel that says simply be a good person. This gospel is one that says you have touched death. You are guilty. You should die. But God's not willing for you to die. He's extended and extended and has extended even to this day the opportunity for you to get right. Take advantage of it. He wants you to reflect Him and He chose you because you can. Hezekiah, king of Judah, provided a thousand bulls and seven thousand sheep and goats for the assembly. In Passover, you had to provide your own lamb. In unleavened bread, you had to provide your own materials. The king paid for it all for them. Not only were they unclean, they came unprepared. Somebody told me last week that they needed counseling, but they were scared in their church because they had not tithed. They didn't think the pastors would counsel them not having tithed. Saints, God doesn't put a price tag on your spiritual welfare. I'm not looking to see how much money you give so that I know whether or not to give you counsel. And no man of God will do that either. In fact, you might say those that have not found the joy in giving yet need the counsel the most, wouldn't you? He didn't want anybody to be excluded because they didn't have a lamb. So He provided them for it. Hezekiah, king of Judah, provided a thousand bulls, seven thousand sheep and goats for the assembly. And the officials provided them with a thousand bulls and ten thousand sheep and goats. When you've been pardoned and you know it, you are willing to do anything to see others find the joy that you have. That's why your relatives think that you are crazy for walking around excited, talking to strangers in parking lots, and maybe even speaking in tongues. 
These people had found something. They knew they had been pardoned, so they're giving deeply. A great number of priests consecrated themselves. The entire assembly of Judah rejoiced along with the priests and Levites and all who had assembled from Israel, including the aliens who had come from Israel and those who lived in Judah. I love this! You know why? Exodus 12.43 says, if you're an alien, you cannot participate in the Passover. Can't. Period. Unless something happens. This is our whole grafted-in message that we don't have time to teach. You have to be circumcised and pledge yourself to an Israelite and live in their house. This just reminds you who have received the Passover lamb that are Gentile, it wasn't meant for you. It wasn't yours. The only way that it is yours is when you recognize who Israel is, support them, circumcised in the heart, and join their cause to be chief among the nations. That's a theological side note though. And those who lived in Judah. There was a great joy in Jerusalem for since the days of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, there had not been, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. We'll read two more scriptures and close here. The priests and Levites stood to bless the people and God heard them for their prayer reached heaven, His holy dwelling place. What had these priests been ten verses earlier? Ashamed. But when the priest saw God moving among the common people, they gathered themselves by the bootstraps. They began to do what they were called to do. And their prayer was heard in heaven. Saints, whether you feel like a priest or not, it is time to do what God called us to do. And what happens is when you see Craig do it, and when you see Mandy do it, and when you see Bobby and Joey do it, all of a sudden you realize it can be done. When David knows that his prayer is reaching heaven and I see the results and I begin to pray, I know mine can reach heaven. This is the power of fellowship. The priest had a revival because the people received the king's message. That's kind of backwards. That's like the doctor receiving a healing for seeing a patient getting well. But that's how it happened. And here's why it happened. Turn to Psalm 85. We close with this. Or else you'll need healing in your backside. Start in verse 8. Psalm 85, verse 8. This is what I want you to meditate on this week. I will listen to what God, the Lord, will say. He promises peace. That's shalom. A sense that all is right with God and man in your life. All is in order. I will listen to what God, the Lord, will say. He promises peace to His people, His saints. But let them not return to their folly. Where had His saints been? Where had they been? In folly. And yet they're still called saints. Surely His salvation is near those who fear Him, that His glory may dwell in our land. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss, kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. If you want your prayer to be heard in heaven, faithfulness has got to spring forth from the earth so that righteousness can pour down on you. And what is faithfulness? What is it? 
give you a layman's definition here today. We don't have to read Romans 4. We don't have to read Hebrews 11. Let me give you a one-word layman's definition. It's trust. You have to learn to trust God. That means giving up your way, taking His way. That means trusting Him. And when you do that, He's close to you. He's close to you. Faithfulness is a trust. When faithfulness springs forth from the earth, Righteousness looks down from heaven. The Lord will indeed give what is good and our land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before Him and prepares the way for His steps. Faithfulness springs up and righteousness looks down. The call's gone out. The great King, Jesus, who is Yahweh's strength, which is what the name Hezekiah means, has sent his proclamation to the ends of the earth. Clean, unclean, receive what he's done for you. He's willing to pardon you. He's extended the time for you to receive even to today. It's time for faithfulness on your part, a trust in him to spring up so that his righteousness can pour down on you. Now, the worship team's going to come back in to take communion. Uh, Matt's going to strum quietly on a guitar. Some of you have to go. I know that. If you do, just make your way on out. But I want to take communion with the worship team. And if anybody wants to join us, you can do that. If you want to just sit and pray and reflect, you can do that. But it's time for faithfulness to spring up so that righteousness can pour down. Amen? Y'all stand up and let's pray.